hear these words from the Apostle Paul. We're going to start in verse 11, chapter 6. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, I want to encourage, if you weren't here last week, we started a new series. Uh, This month we're going to be talking about uh, spiritual formation together and fasting. And last week was kind of the why, so if you're a fan of Simon Sinek, uh, if you know like in any kind of business, the why is really important, the why before the what and the how. And last week was kind of our why, so I want to encourage you to go back there. But just, uh, just briefly, um, we, we talked about spiritual formation, our why is that we want to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. That's why we talk about spiritual formation. It's not for the sake of spiritual disciplines or for the sake of fasting. There's no power in fasting in and of itself. There's no power in any spiritual discipline, but rather it's, it's towards something. We want to live towards a vision of wholeness, right, in our lives in the world that's compelling and that shows and demonstrates the kingdom of God to those around us and leads us to actually live lives of flourishing um, in our kind of embodied existence. And so um, this is the vision for formation. And, and fasting is, is a tool that, that people have used throughout church history, throughout the Bible, um, to help them along this journey. And so we defined fasting last week. And again, some of us have different ideas of fasting. Uh, biblically speaking, we're not talking about like abstinence, like fasting from social media or dark chocolate or uh, you know some relationship that's annoying you. We're, we're actually talking about biblically not eating food, right? So this is not eating food for a period of time so that, again, not just for deprivation, but so that we can learn to feast on God's presence, to draw strength and energy and vitality and life from God that will reorient kind of the whole, uh, our whole persons to God. And so we said there's, there's basically four purposes of fasting that we're going to cover over the next couple of weeks. Uh, last week we talked about uh, fasting as a response to God in life's sacred moments. This week, we're going to be talking about what it looks like for us to pursue fasting as a means towards freedom for our bodies. Um, Next week, we're going to talk about fasting in relationship to solidarity to the poor. And then lastly, we'll talk about uh, fasting and feasting and what it looks like to to yearn for God and to find our hungers satisfied in God and in his kingdom. So um, today, we're talking about body. And the reason we're going to talk about the body is because fasting is a very bodily thing. It, it is, in its essence, not eating food, which is, as we talked about last week, at the very core, uh, especially if you live in broader pool, it's just like your life is organized around food, right? Or avoiding food. Um, and so, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, as I think about body, one of the reasons I have a hard time with fasting is because I have a hard time with my body. 
And um, growing up, I was thinking about this this week, um, it's kind of weird to talk about it, but I never felt comfortable in my body. Growing up, like, I grew up in a family, my mom and dad will be here next service, so you can ask them about this, but uh, they're here every week, sitting on the front, are usually validating everything that I'm saying, or horrified by what I'm saying about my childhood, but um, we, we grew up in a family where we just weren't comfortable with our bodies. We didn't talk about our bodies, particularly when it comes to emotions. We're very, like, heady, kind of cerebral family. My mom's an English teacher, and so we, we didn't really talk about our bodies. My parents both grew up in kind of abusive homes uh, in different ways, and I think um, we're very, we were very detached from our bodies. I was, now I'm all of five foot nine and three quarters now, but I was a, a slight child, uh, to say the least, and I always felt uh, either envious or just, you know, shame, ashamed of, of my body. I was the last one to kind of hit puberty, uh, was a late bloomer. Uh, for those out there, I'm sorry. It's just, it's, it's horrible. And so I, I think for me, I always struggled with just feeling comfortable with my body. And so for me, my body was something that um, I tried to ignore. Something, it was kind of something I tried to discipline. And, and one of the ways, for me at least, that I dealt with body insecurity was through performance, right? Through sports and academics. If I can excel in performance, then I, I don't have to worry about kind of some of this body issues that, that I dealt with. And I, I don't know where you're at with your body. I don't know even you know, if you think about your body a lot, but like your body really matters. And, and we've all been shaped and formed by uh, certain cultural narratives around the body. And, and, and that goes for both inside the church and outside the church. And I, I could talk a lot about, we could talk about body image a lot this morning. We could talk about uh, how, the, how kind of our culture approaches our bodies. And I think we all see this, right? Like there's kind of two ways that we can distort the body. One is through uh, exaggeration, right? And this is kind of like the like life outside the church, kind of in the, in the secular culture in which we live this moment. It, it's very much about exaggeration of the body, right? Where we see our bodies as um, things to be indulged, things to be kind of glorified, like a celebrity that needs to be kind of fed. Uh, for some of us, that takes... Um, that takes kind of shape around like seeing our bodies as just material, right? We're kind of reducing our bodies to our physicality um, and, and seeing our bodies as like a, a machine that needs to be tuned, right? Like a high-performance machine that we need to maximize. And so we talk our, about our bodies in terms of like in food, like I need to fuel my body, right? And we talk about performance-oriented type things. Um, that is to say for some of us, um, especially outside the church, um, the body is something to be controlled, something to be tuned, right? Um, for others of us, maybe, uh, for others, other uh, kind of mentalities, it's, the body maybe is viewed as some kind of a cornucopia. I remember this, like, around, like, Thanksgiving feast time, the cornucopia, that, like, twisted horn thing that you fill with all kinds of fun goodies. Like, we, we look at our bodies just as, as, like, factories of pleasure that we just kind of want to fill with all kinds of food and experiences and energy and, and really, for that kind of mentality, it's really about indulging our bodies. Our bodies are simply things to be indulged with various kinds of pleasures. Now, um, lest you think that I'm just picking on kind of life outside the church, one, all of us have been formed by this. But I would actually argue in some ways, inside the church, it's worse, right? Like if we can say kind of inside the church, because in a lot of ways, we've been shaped by these same narratives, and yet we also have reacted against them historically and how we've taught about the body. So the religious narrative is usually not one of exaggeration. Like, I haven't been to a church where it's like, yeah, your body's a cornucopia, do whatever you want. I mean, there are churches like that, but not like many. 
Um, I think for us, it's probably the opposite error, the opposite distortion, which is a diminishment of the body. We diminish the body. We, we, we react to kind of uh, the way we see body being taught out in the world. And I think there's two kind of images that we have of our bodies, at least in the church. One is that our body is a monster. Our body is this untamable, unquenchable, just monster that has to be disciplined, it has to be beaten, it has to be abused, it has to be kind of controlled. And so for some of us in the church, it's about conquering our bodies, not cooperating with our bodies. For others, maybe uh, it's more of the imagery of a wallflower, right? The body's just something to be tolerated, something to be ignored, right? Because what really matters is our inner life, our spiritual person, and the body for some of us is just a shell that carries around the really important stuff. It's a treasure chest full of the really important stuff like our soul and our spirit, right? And so um, the church really over the years, at least in my experience since becoming a Christian, um, I think probably that the thing we, we could say the most is that the church has been silent. There's just this kind of like void of teaching on the body and how we're to use our bodies to glorify God and our, and our teaching has either been silent or reactive. So there's kind of the exaggeration of the body. Sometimes, ironically, the exaggeration of the body leads to the diminishment of the body when it doesn't meet our expectations. And then also, I just want to throw out a third category because I know this is a reality for many of us. Um, there's also body trauma. Like many of us have lived, I mean, statistics say one out of every four to six folks have endured some kind of assault. Like in this room, think about trauma. There's a great book on the body and trauma, if you want to read more about this. Uh, it's called The Body Keeps the Score. And The Body Keeps the Score, he talks about, he's a, a neuroscientist, he talks about how our bodies carry trauma for 10 and 15 years. Like our bodies remember the things that we experience, even if consciously we're not aware of how trauma shapes our anxiety in our bodies. And so we have to be aware of how our wounds and our trauma can also lead to disfigured and distorted ways of relating to ourselves, whether, through, whether that's through self-harm or self-indulgence. So all of that's kind of happening, right, like in our everyday lives. And it's really sad, and it's really hard, and it's really difficult. And the result for many of us is these conflicting emotions in their body, Right? Uh, on the one hand, we, we feel delight in our body sometimes, and we don't know how to express that. So maybe for some of us, it's about suppressing uh, things that are happening in our bodies. For others of us, it's just whatever I feel is kind of how I live, and you're driven by the desires and the impulses and the things happening in your body. For many of us, I think there's just some core emotions that we kind of cycle between when it comes to our embodied existence, like shame, Right, like just this sense of something's, not only have I done something wrong, but I am wrong. Something's wrong with me. Something's wrong with my body. And we have kind of distorted ways of looking at ourselves. Um, fear, right? Like we're afraid of like our body's desires. And so we spend a lot of time managing things and trying to keep things under control, right? Um, and we often ignore, which we all know like down the road can be really harmful because then it's going to come out sideways in some other ways. Um, for some of us, it's just a sense of anxiety. I was talking to a friend this week about some of these issues and her sharing with me just how uh, embodied existence for them is just like this performance anxiety, right? Just high stakes living when it comes to the body. Um, and then there's just guilt, right? We have all kinds of guilt about things done in our bodies and to our bodies. And so to me, it's like, man, no wonder we numb. No wonder we want to disconnect and detach from our bodies because 
there's just so much happening in our embodied lives. So what I want to talk about this morning is um, what does God think about our bodies and, and how specifically fasting can be a tool to help reorient our bodies towards God, right? Because I think for many of us, again, this is just, um, we've been taught or maybe not taught, um, maybe not uh, completely wrong things, but definitely incomplete things, deficient things when it comes to how we think about our bodies and how things like fasting can be tools, not, again, towards legalism, right? There's no command in the Bible, thou shalt fast, but how they can help us in pursuing the kind of freedom that God designed us to live towards in our embodied lives together as a church. Like, we're never going to get it right, like, out in the world if we as followers of Jesus can't figure out how to get it right in our own discipleship, right? And so that's why we want to talk about this today. So um, I want to talk first about what is God doing with our bodies? And this is just for some of us that maybe have never been taught this. I just want to give you a quick little overview, a biblical theology of the body in the Bible. And I wish that I had time to, to just go into more detail. I will say, um, if you're a person that maybe wants to read more about this, uh, I did want to recommend a couple of books that have been extremely helpful to me. One is by a lady named Tara Owens. It's called Embracing the Body. It's one of the best treatments of the body from a Christian perspective I've ever read. Um, very, very good. And then also, uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, Fasting by Scott McKnight is also really helpful, and he has a lot of encouragements there for how to think about a holistic perspective on our body. But let me just give you the story from the Bible of our bodies in like five minutes. What is God doing with our bodies? God created man and woman in the beginning in bodies. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, and we don't have time to read all these scriptures, but I've kind of listed these out. It's supposed to be 1, 2, 3, 4, forgive me. Uh, we listed these out as a story, as movements in a story. Uh, and the first movement is body goodness, right? Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God creates male and female in his image for his glory. He creates them in bodies, to be created in the image of God means a lot, and there's been a lot of books written about that, but at least it means that we are to represent God in our bodies to the world. We're to show the world what God looks like in our embodied existence. So he gives us bodies that are gendered, that are sexual, right? He gives us bodies that are composed of different dimensions, but it's a unified whole, right? That's what we read, that God creates human beings, we see in Genesis 1 that he blesses their bodies, and he calls them very good. So right from the beginning, there is an affirmation that many of us have never heard, or at least don't feel in our bodies, that your body was designed by God as sacred and holy and good. That's what Genesis chapter 1 says. Genesis chapter 2 then goes on to say that God breathes into life the man and the woman in their embodied existence, and he does it, he forms Adam, the word is Adam in the Hebrew, he forms Adam from the ground. It's a play on words in the Hebrew. He forms Adam from Adama, which is the ground. We are creatures of the ground. We are creatures of dust. And then he breathes, that word breath there is the word ruach, from which we get the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. He breathes the Spirit of God into the first man, Adam, and he becomes what's called a living being. Now, there's a lot going on there in that passage, but the most important thing that you understand about your body is that you were created to be in an integrated, unified whole. Your body is good, and your body 
is integrated and it is whole. It is unified. You are a body and a spirit. Now, this is a shift in the narrative in Genesis 1 and 2 because before that we see God creates animals, right, which are bodies without spirit. We're going to see later in the Bible that there are angels that God creates, which are spirit without body. But with human beings, God creates this unity of person, body, spirit, mind, soul, will, feelings. It's all tied together. This is what spiritual writers call an embodied spirituality. We are a whole. We are one. We don't just, get this, we don't just have a body. We are a body. You understand that? You don't just have a body that possesses the important stuff. You are a body. Now, you're not less, you're, you're not just a body, but you are your body. There is this bringing together, this fusing of our physicality and our spirituality, that if we don't get, we miss something of the essence of what it means to thrive as human beings. And this issues forth, if we don't get this, all kinds of errors, all kinds of splits around how people have understood the dichotomy between body and soul, right, what's been called dualism. So body goodness in Genesis 1 and 2, body shame in Genesis chapter 3, the first temptation is around food, and God, uh, Adam and Eve uh, here, we see our uh, experience in this temptation, not just about food, and not just about fruit, although it is about food, but it's about are you going to trust God with your bodies? Are you going to trust God with your whole person, right? Life with God is just trusting God. And so the temptation is uh, about trusting God instead of our self-centered impulses. And we see here that Adam and Eve choose to trust themselves, to trust the voice of the serpent rather than the voice in the spirit of God. And what happens there is life in the world gets inverted, right? Instead of ruling over plants and animals, now Adam and Eve are ruled and mastered by plants and animals, right? By fruit and by serpent, right? So there's an inversion of the image of God. And what happens in this moment is that humans will now struggle with their bodies. We see shame for the very first time here in Genesis chapter 3. They became aware that they were naked, something's wrong with me, and they tried to cover themselves in the presence of God. That's the essence of shame is something is wrong with me and I need to hide, I need to pretend, I need to cover myself, I need to blame. We see that all in Genesis chapter 3. And now, human beings will struggle with disordered desires in their body. They will struggle with impulses. They will struggle with energies that lead them away from trusting God for their deepest happiness. Third movement in the story is body redemption. Then God comes in the flesh in John chapter 1. Jesus, the Word, becomes flesh. He takes on flesh, dwells among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. God becomes flesh, scandalous to the Jewish mind, to the Greek mind. Flesh is evil. Matter is evil. God incarnates himself, literally takes on meat is the idea of incarnation. Carne, sada. God becomes steak, meat. And he inhabits a real body. So God becomes flesh, but get this also, flesh becomes God. Flesh now has the ability to commune with God, to be with God. So God is, in becoming flesh, identifying with and inhabiting a real human body, right? He is not a ghost. 
It's not a, it's not, this is not an illusion. God is flesh. Jesus touches people. He washes their feet. He heals their bodies by touching them, spitting in their face. The New Testament and the earliest creeds, if you read the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, make a huge deal about Jesus' body. Without Jesus' body, there is no salvation. Without Jesus' real, physical, human body really dying on a cross and really rising from the dead, there is no forgiveness of sins. There is no salvation. Like, this, this idea of the physicality of God and what it means for us in our bodies, man, is so important. Colossians 1, Paul says, he has reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. And, and it goes on to say, Paul goes on to write that Jesus is not only come in the body, but he's come to redeem our bodies, not just your soul, not just your spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, your body is for the Lord and the Lord for your body. One day, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, what is sown perishable will be raised imperishable. Not just your soul will be resurrected, but your body will be resurrected and you will be given a new glorified body that will never die, that will never be subject to decay and illness and cancer and all of these other maladies that we have in our bodies. So, in between though, we have the last part of the story there, in between the promise of this redemption of Jesus coming and the final redemption of our bodies. We live in this already but not yet tension as disciples of Jesus. And this is what we'll call, to, to just put it nicely, body conflict. Body conflict, right? This tension of in our bodies, the Holy Spirit lives in me by grace through faith, but we struggle. We struggle to live out in our embodied existence the new realities of life with God. How is that kind of transformation supposed to happen? And again, this is where there's some bad teaching. For some of us, we have mistakenly taught that if we just think the right things and we just believe the right things, then miraculously and inevitably we will change. It's about the mental life, the inner life only, and the bodies don't matter. But let me just ask you, this is Western rationalism, by the way, that's crept into the church. We are simply brains on a stick. Now, let me ask you this question. Just use your common sense. How many times have you thought the right thing and still found your body pushing you to do the opposite? Like, if it were just as easy as thinking the right thing, then it's like, hey, here's the thing, believe it, and now it's good. But like, our actual existence, existence tells us that's not what happens. I think one thing, and I do another and by the way, like, we have no idea how to overcome that. Few of us have like, real concrete daily strategies for dealing with the mystery of this conflict, this mixed bag that is our bodies. I want to do this, and yet I find myself doing this? Does that sound familiar? That's like a Bible verse, you know. Romans chapter 7, Paul, the realist. I love Paul. He's just such a realist, right? Such a kind of like bringing us here like a biblical psychology that's so real, biblical anthropology that's so refreshing because we all like to pretend that we're farther along than we are, that we really are doing this right. And Paul says, uh-uh. Romans 7. I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. 
so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Can we give Paul an amen? I want to do what's right. There's something in me, my inner being, my, my, my soul wants to do the right thing, but I feel this tension in my body, this civil war of the body pulling me in different directions. Paul says, embodied existence for a disciple is a struggle. It's a war, he'll go on to say. It is a battle. And in order to experience sustained change, we must understand the redemption of our bodies as Paul did. That is to say, a progressive, gradual struggle involving real human and divine interactions and events that result in the transformation of our bodies. Gradual, sometimes incremental movement. But real action, not just thinking the right things, not just believing the right things, doing the right things, living toward something with God. Galatians 5, Paul kind of describes this battle as a battle between two opposing forces. He says, I, I, he, command, he, he instructs the Galatians, the church of Galatia, I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Now, pause. This is where bad teaching again creeps in and is not helpful, okay? Notice Paul doesn't say here that your body is evil and that your body is opposed to your spirit. What does he say? Your flesh is opposed to your spirit. There's a war between our flesh and the spirit of God living in us. This word flesh is not the same word as body. So there's two words for the body in the New Testament primarily used by the Apostle Paul. One is this word flesh, which is the word sarks, S-A-R-X. The other is the, is the word soma, which actually our, bo- our, our, our church means this. It means our body, right? So sarks in the Bible, the flesh Paul is writing about is what you might call disordered desire, right? It is this thing that when sin, this kind of parasite, twists and distorts our desires and our bo- and embodied existence, it bends our good desires in self-centered ways, away from God and towards fulfilling the desires of the flesh. So your desires for food, for sex, for comfort, for safety, for security, for relationships, for like all of these things, they're not bad desires, they're actually gifts from God, but what the flesh does is it hijacks them and bends them away from life with God and towards self-centered impulse. That's the idea of the flesh. And the spirit The idea of the Spirit, then, is this new order that comes through the Holy Spirit making his home in us and reorienting over time our whole person from self-centered fulfillment to loving God and to loving others with our bodies. That's the battle that's kind of raging in us. So we see the flesh impacting our embodied existence, like everywhere, right? I mean, notice Paul says in Romans, if you go back to uh, Romans chapter 6 to our passage of this morning, We see this uh, in verses 11 through 13. Paul says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
He's talking about this kind of slavery to the flesh. In chapter 7, he was saying, there's a law at work in my members that I don't do what I want to do. I want to do this, but I, I don't do this. Paul says these disordered desires that come from the flesh in us are largely unwanted and unconscious. I don't want to do them. They're like intruders, but yet I find myself driven to do them. Most of these embodied habits in, that we have, the slavery that we have to the flesh, are learned, right? They're learned, they're implicit, like that is to say unconscious, and they're compulsions that arise from a complex interaction of like what it means to be human, right? Our biology, right? We have certain biological, neurobiological predispositions and inclinations, ways that the circuitry of our brains get wired when we are little, that impact how we show up in the world, that we've not sat and really thought about. They just seem to us to be normal or automatic, right? We've got social systems, like our family of origin is the primary way we learn to relate to other people in the world, our relationships with our parents, with our early caregivers, with our friends, right? That's the place that we learn a lot of these habits. We learn how to respond to other people, how to relate to other people, because we are formed by relationships, Right? Anthropologically, the Bible teaches that. Our choices, our spirituality, like our sins, our wounds, our limitations, and our losses form this, this law of the body, these embodied habits. And some of them drive us away from fullness of life with God. So Paul here is giving us a practical spirituality for living into the increasing freedom that God designed us to experience as his beloved children. As disciples, we now, Paul says, have the opportunity to participate in the pursuit of, notice what he says, freedom with God. That is what God has designed our bodies to experience, liberation, to experience increasing freedom with God. Now, the difference between before Christ and in Christ is that now we have agency. We don't have to be slaves to these habits. We now have a choice. The Spirit of God lives in us and can say no to some things and say yes to God. We have agency. We have responsibility to grow towards freedom. Freedom in the Bible is not doing what you want with your body. Okay, that is a direct assault on kind of the cultural narrative of our body right now. Do whatever you want. It's your body, right? Nobody can tell you what to do with your body. You're keep your laws off my body, right? We are all about body autonomy. But in the Bible, it teaches that our bodies belong to God, and true freedom, that's actually slavery to the flesh. That leads you to a place where you no longer actually are doing what you want to do. You are driven by what your body tells you it wants you to do. It's a terrible place to be, and it's exhausting. It's addiction. Freedom is the freedom to align our deepest desires with our embodied life in God's kingdom. Freedom is learning to want what God wants. So that before, what was automatic was to give ourselves over to the flesh. Increasingly, what becomes automatic is I'm giving myself to righteousness. And righteousness, again, we think of like buttoned up, like religion, right? Righteousness in the Bible is wholeness. It's life as God designed it to be. Integrated wholeness. That's righteousness. So we increasingly become free from not only the power of sin over us, but the very presence of sin in our lives. Now, that's never complete until Jesus comes back, but that is what God's doing in our bodies. And so let me just wrap this, and then I want to tie this up with fasting. You're like, what does this have to do with fasting? A lot. 
If you don't understand the body, you'll never understand fasting. If you want to fast, you've got to understand your body. But here's, here's the point I want to make. Our bodies are designed by God to be free. Our, our bodies are critical to our spiritual formation. Your body matters to God. What you do with your body matters to God. Dallas Willard says this, the human body is the primary field of independent power and freedom given by God to people. Put simply, no body, no power, right? You ever been down sick? No body, no power. People have a body for one reason, that we might have at our disposal the resources that would allow us to be persons in fellowship and cooperation with the personal God. Through the instrumentality of his life-giving word, God in regeneration renews our original capacity for divine interaction. But our body's substance is only to be transformed totally by actions and events in which we choose to participate from day to day. It will not happen magically. And it will not happen only through thinking the right things, although it's not less than that. Tara Owens says this, The glory of our bodies is that they are better than we could have ever imagined, and the mystery of them is that they house such suffering and disorder as well. It is in the wilderness, I love this term, the wilderness of the body, this place of utter frailty and dependence that we find ourselves freed by God. You will not be freed anywhere other than your body. Like, touch it right now. This body that I have is all that I have to grow in my relationship with God. This is it. If I don't find freedom in this body, I will not find freedom in any other body. I cannot detach from this body. I cannot disconnect from this body. I cannot ignore this body. God has given me this body for all of its beauty and, and, and ugliness, whatever, like to glorify him. So how does fasting then help bring freedom for our bodies? Again, there's no direct command here, right? Like you'll never see a passage of the Bible that says fast so that you can bring freedom to your bodies. Fasting is one of those indirect things that helps us with our bodies. It indirectly prepares us to cooperate with God in our bodies and to do it with strength, with increasing effectiveness and increasing joy, right? Fasting itself holds no power and it's not the goal. The goal is life with God, right? You don't learn the piano. You don't discipline yourself to play the piano just for the sake of practicing. You, dis- you discipline yourself to play the piano so that you can become familiar and intimate with Mozart. You don't practice just for practice sake for sports. You practice to play the game. And it's the same thing with fasting. That's why Scott McKnight calls it body talk. It's, it's talking to God with our whole bodies, learning to do that well, engaging with God with our whole bodies. So, Just two quick things that fasting does. Fasting um, leads us towards freedom in two ways. One, it cultivates body awareness. Fasting cultivates body awareness. If we are going to experience the transformation of our bodies, we must get back in touch with our bodies. Many of us live our Christian lives on a head trip. We live in our heads, not in our bodies. We must get back in touch with our bodies. When you fast, you are painfully aware of your body, okay? Confession of fasting for the first time in a long time this week because I don't want to be a hypocrite talking about fasting and not be experiencing it, right? And, And man, I was so in touch with my body this week, painfully in touch with the realities of my body. When you fast, things begin to bubble up in your body. Feelings, thoughts, desires, memories, your imagination. Like, these are all parts of what it means to live in your body. 
Many of us are out of touch with or alienated from our bodies, or we over-identify with one dimension of our bodies. And here's the thing. Here's what I'm finding to be true. Your body doesn't lie. Your body will tell you what you actually believe. You may say, I trust this bridge over like a very high, you know, like, uh, you know, high, like gorge or something, but the, the, the sweat in your palms and the anxiety and increasing blood pressure will tell you you actually don't believe that's true, that it's going to hold you up. You may say you love the poor, but when your body is revulsed by, this, by, by, by being around certain people, your body t- is telling you what you actually believe. When you say, love your enemy, forgive and walk in reconciliation, but your body is taking you away from that person rather than towards that person, your body is telling you what you actually believe. The anxiety, the sweaty palms, the irrational fears, the headaches, the avoidances in your body, the emotions that come up in your body, right? You know, emotions are not bad. They're not sinful in and of themselves. They are simply physiological body states. We must learn to listen to them. They're data. They're not everything, but they are data that give us clues into what's happening in our bodies. Psychologist David Benner says, alienation from our bodies lies at the core of our alienation from our deepest self in the world. Until we can be at home in our body, we can never truly be home anywhere. Until we can return to being grounded in ourself as a biological organism, we will forever be vulnerable to looking for a substitute anchor for our being. So let me just ask you, what's your story with your body? Some of us are so disconnected from our bodies. Where did you learn that? Who taught you that your body is ugly? Who taught you that your body doesn't matter? Who taught you that your body is just simply a brain on a stick? What's happening? Like, what images do you carry around about your body? Is it a monster? Is it a cornucopia? Is it a celebrity? Is it a machine? Think about those. Reflect on those. Get in touch with your body. Ask yourself this question this week. What's happening in my body right now that might tell me something about what I'm actually believing about God, about myself, and about life in God's world? What's happening right now? Like, just literally, like, do you feel tension in your chest? Do a body scan. Like, lay down in a dark room and just do a body scan. Start with your head, the hairs on your head, and move down to your toes. Where do you feel tension Where do you feel anxiety? Where do you feel fear? Fear gets embodied, like in your guts, right? You can feel it. You know when it's happening. Pay attention. How has trauma played a role in how you relate to your body? Fasting cultivates body awareness, and then ultimately, not just for the sake of being aware, like, oh, that's interesting, okay? The goal of that, then, is a reorientation of myself to God. Fasting reorients our body's desires to God in his kingdom. It dials us into desire, right? We are creatures of desire. We are creatures that are pushed and moved by desire. Desire is not bad. You hear me? Desire is not in and of itself bad. It is part of what it means to be human. Matter of fact, if you have no desire, you will not live long. Your desires for food, drink, sex, love, friendship, comfort, children, sexuality, ambition, rest, spirituality are given by God, and desires that are surrendered and transformed by God are actually necessary to love God and to love other people, right? If you have no desire, you can't love. The problem is not desire, it's when our lives are driven by self-centered, disordered desires. And again, we go back to the text here, Paul is talking about passions, which we often translate as desires, of the flesh, 
He's not saying desire is bad. What he's saying is disorder. The word is epithumia, overdrive desires. Desires for the right things in the wrong proportion for the wrong purposes. Now, that word probably is better translated actually lust, not desires. Lust seeks to consume. Lust seeks to possess. Lust, an impulse of lust moves towards things without thought or care or presence to exploit them. That's what Paul's saying is disordered, right? That's what's what we've got to fight against. Fasting creates space for us to step back from our attachments, from our patterns, from our habits, so that we can learn to discern between healthy desire, God-oriented desire, and unhealthy desire, desire that leads us away from God. Because again, behind all desire is communion with God. God has designed food so that we might glorify him. God has designed sex so we might say, thank you, God, for that pleasure. He's designed all of these different relationships in our lives to lead us back to himself, to remind us of our desperate need for communion with him. And so what fasting does is it gives us the space to be honest about our desires before God. God, I want this, and I shouldn't want this, but I actually do, and I need to talk to you about that, God. To be honest about our desires before God and allow the Holy Spirit to reorder and reorient our desires towards him and towards other people in appropriate and life-giving ways. As we feast on God, God strengthens our desire for him, and he weakens our desires that are disordered. So as we fast, we can ask questions like, why am I doing what I'm doing when I'm doing it? Why do I want what I want When I want food, why am I wanting food right now in this way, in this proportion, or not? Why am I wanting sex? Why am I wanting money? Why am I wanting power? What do I really want when I want these things? For honest, it's a mixed bag. Fasting gives us space to invite God into those desires and to discern between those that lead us towards him and those that lead away from him. In his great book on fasting, Arthur Wallace says this, we do not need to extinguish the fire in the grate only to prevent the coals from falling out and setting the place on fire. So, I want to close just by inviting you this week to consider this invitation from God to fast. To begin the process of of pressing into your body story. How does your body story align with the story of God, right? Are you living into the reality of the freedom that God has designed you to experience if you're in Christ? If not, and where you see those gaps in the distance, then why? And again, maybe the starting point for you, again, many of us have body image issues. Many of us struggle with uh, unhealthy eating patterns or control with food or anxiety around our bodies. And again, maybe for you the first step is just counseling. Maybe it's to draw near to a friend and begin to talk about these things in a vulnerable, authentic way and just say, hey, here's where I'm at. I don't understand this. I don't know. But maybe the worst thing for you would actually be to fast. I don't know. But again, it's not a command. It's an invitation. And so what is God inviting you to do to prepare your body to experience, to present your body, right? We have a choice. Present our body as slaves to sin and the flesh or to present the members of our body to God for increasing righteousness and wholeness. That is the imitation of fasting and freedom with our bodies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this good word about our bodies. God, I thank you for the realism of the Apostle Paul just telling us that it's going to be hard, that it's difficult to undo these automatic patterns and habits in our body. They are deeply embedded in our practice of being human. 
God, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit and, and, and by your grace, unleash freedom for us? Would you allow us to, to grab on and cling to the freedom that comes only by the, the enfleshed body of Jesus Christ? Come into this world, dying on a cross for our sins, rising again in a resurrected body, in a flesh, a glorious flesh, for our salvation. God, help us to cling to that by 